The following is a parody. What you are about to hear is satire. We got our first ad, folks. Protect yourself from harmful expert radiation caused by overexposure to expert analysis. Use 5SPF. Use code MASCOT to save 10% or more on your next Sicko's 5SPF. Pit girl, that was for you. So I want to ask a couple questions today. We're lucky to have a Warhawk guest with us this week. And so Warhawk guest, I've got a couple questions for you. Where did the idea for 5SPF come from? Really out of thin air. Kind of had a vision that I had a bunch of wheels deciding to what to talk about, really. I was just like, okay, let's just make a bunch of decision wheels because I had no idea how to preview the season because on my podcast, we never did a season preview. Like last year we started, last year we started (laughs) with like the, the poll Uh, results the preseason poll results and then we went into a week zero preview so i had no idea how to preview a season and i was like okay let's make something that can decide for me basically (laughs) so i was like okay let's get three wheels and let's go i was very proud to write for some of these uh good luck figuring (laughs) out which schools i did but i did one entire conference and i did half of another conference so I want to ask my two my two guests, the host, real quick. Hey guys, have you read any of these? Because they're very good. Very good stuff, Josiah. Very good. You stuff. seen this yet, Jeff? What'd you think of the Big Ten preview? I, I have not gotten through it. I, I've gotten inundated with with emails, and I need to go back through it before the season starts. A lot to so, keep up with I, as we get into the season. Yeah, week and or zero days, depending on how you count the start of the season. I uh, did one that I feel really proud of, which would says Duke's still uneligible so uh, that was what i i really appreciated doing next walk us through the process for getting an idea through the committee so how do you start to publish really it's it's kind of just a random thought pops in my head uh then i try to pare it down from there it it gets hashed out and we have some sort of like a business discord where i'll just be at work I had my normal job, which, of course, this is not my real job, but at my normal job, I'll be bored by this. And then a thought pops in my head. And so I just go to the mobile app, the business discord, and just type in an idea. And then I kind of let it marinate for a little bit. And I'm like, is this possible? Is this ridiculous? Is this something that somebody else has already done? Uh, is it something that somebody else already did? And can we do it in a completely ridiculous way? Or and make it seem serious? Can we do something that is just way too much work for something that means absolutely nothing? And if the answers are pretty much yes to that, uh, it, we probably go forward with it, no matter how much time it takes. Heck which yes, I'm glad I'm able to. See. <laughs> I, I was gonna say we've all got the potential ratio. So I mean, I think I tortured myself with that one a ton. And you sure did. I, I mean, in, you the, sure in did. the Discord, I'm <laughs> I just it. yelling at myself so you can see it in real time in the business Discord, not the not the one you can join, because I don't want you to see that side of me. <laughs> but <laughs> but really, it's it's something that's just all right. I have an idea. I'm just going to start pulling threads 
And can I make it happen? Or is this ridiculous? And should I just abandon this completely? Or, you know, is it, is it, will it not come off correct? Will it, I mean, can I convey what is in my idiotic brain <laughs> into a format that people will enjoy? And if I can do that, I'm going to go through with it because really, I, my, my job is kind of boring. Um, you know, it's it's a lot of the same stuff over and over again. And when it's repetitive, you, you tend to, your mind starts to wonder. And, and this has kind of helped the committee in some ways. I will say this, watching you load up that Excel spreadsheet with the 5,000 different data points that you talked about and watching every step of the way. Why am I doing this? I Man, I didn't <laughs> think this would be this heavy. God, I, I don't even know. That was, I know you look at it as torture, but I, I see it as a labor of love and, and watching you walk through that process as someone who has looked at both metadata and turned that into real data. And Josiah, as another individual who has done the same, we both appreciate it. In yeah, some I, I mean, like there was, I, I think I went through like four or five different iterations of like what size radius I was going to use because I could not get the results that I wanted, I guess, but I, I just wanted, you know, a lot of teams over 50%. And once I could get the teams over 50%, because I mean, that's, the, that's what the basis of the blue chip ratio was. You got to be over 50%. And that's right. So once I could figure that out and it took longer than I anticipated. And then, I mean, we're looking at 15,000 data entries, which will just get bigger and bigger. Uh, yes. because I made it to where we could do it next year too. And through years in the future, then who knows, maybe I can expand it to FCS at, at one point in time, if we can get some recruiting data there. Once again, we're stubborn <laughs> for big data. That's just our new podcast now, Jeff, as yep. I knew you, you were on to something when we were stat curious. And finally, I'm so happy. I <laughs> still remember how to use SQL. Do I still remember how to use SQL? I am asking myself this as we are Man, thinking about this. About that sequel. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> empirical scientist here never had to use it. Um, so last question: Can you give us a sneak peek of what the next so event is? The season's starting. Uh, this is going to be probably a, a right. blog, uh, a travel blog for me, and. Uh, it's it's a bit of a pilgrimage, I would say, for my fandom to to basically see their where their biggest moment in the program history ever occurred. Uh, and now this occurs in uh, a weird spot, and I'm probably going to anger some fan bases of of another fan base who is a big fan of our account uh, by doing this. But again, this is kind of a personal thing for me, so I, I don't want to offend the rival of this team, even though they love us so much and follow us, which they, they may get mad that I'm, I'm visiting the other uh, spot first. But again, this is a personal pilgrimage and I am going to be taking a flight and go to two states that I've never been before. I'm going to be going to a conference office. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a visit. I, I don't want to give that away. Which conference offices? Ooh. But I mean, okay. you know, okay. it's, it's, oh, okay. it's, well. it's a large um, object that is outside. And if you look up, you can see it. So maybe you can get it from there, but no, I'll be heading to that conference office to meet with a, a conference office who allowed us to vote in a preseason poll. 
which you may know who that is anyway. Yes, yeah, the large uh, sure. moon conference. Exactly yeah. what it is. And then from there, I'll be driving probably about, uh, I'd say about two hours, two hours, 15 minutes to the location and just going to catch a game, which they said their press box is very small, so they're going to have to put us on the field. So I'm going to watch a game from field level. Oh, from field level. Um, <laughs> and my goal is here is after the game is over, I want to try to make an extra point. So that's it. That's my goal. I, I got to make an extra point. You got uh, it. This, this stadium or arena uh, doesn't have any bottom to the goalpost, so it just hangs. So I want to make an extra point through a hanging goalpost. So I want to see if I can do that. And that is the goal, and I, I'm going to need to stretch. I know that for sure. <laughs> Will anybody be coming after you to stop I, you? No, I Will can't, the defensive I can't, line be trying to stop I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I, I'm going to, you know, I got to work on no, it's uh, tea or no tea or holder. You're gonna have a tea or holder who's taking off of work to do okay. this with me <laughs> to to fly. Uh, which this I mean, they great. did this to the trip that we went to Las Cruces last year. So this is kind of like an annual thing at this point with one of my friends who's not like in the Discord or anything like that. So yeah, it's gonna be a pilgrimage, a personal pilgrimage for me, and then um, just want to see it because I mean the fandoms are. Uh, a unique, a unique one. Uh, it's a, it's a long languished one. Uh, ever since they made the move, so I, yes, you know, I can't wait. It's gonna be fun. It's not gonna be as good as food as as Las Cruces. I don't think. Uh, you know, the, uh, they're gonna I don't be furious know. to hear. Maybe that. there'll be some sort of like you know vegetable variety that I can get on many different things. So we'll see. I, I look forward to it. Tell them we miss them dearly when you get there. And that will be our cold open. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the 20th episode of Feed Your Mascot. My name is Blue, and I am joined with the two hosts of our show, Jeff, who he's got on an Arsenal kit, folks, because they're away this week. Jeff, tell us about it again. I know I've asked you once, but I'd love for you to tell us one more time. Yep, Arsenal is right now, as we speak, as we record, playing Fulham. They're actually down uh, nil to one. So, uh... Yeah. So is that like being that down is, like 14 points or something? Yeah, how does that work? Real football? Uh, there's there's still uh about 25 minutes left in regulation. So so it's 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 similar to just being down like set, down by 7. Um mm-hmm. there's I mean there's definitely time to get get two more goals in and we have been making our way into the box and actually getting some good opportunities but um some decent goaltending on the other side by Burn Leno. So what are the implications of they this just, game? Oh, go ahead, Josiah. My bad. 
I was going to say, they just need to put the defense really on the field. If they get a safety, that'll put them in the lead, and they should be good to go from there. <laughs> Again, this is why I don't keep up with the sport. There's too many rules to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Josiah, welcome. Good to hear from you. Two questions. One, lawn update. Two, what shirt do you have on? I'm, well, you know, I'm wearing the pokes today. Um, the pokes. Lawn update. Lawn update is that it finally got mowed because it was dry long enough, but it took me three days to do it because it was so tall and I had a limited window that normally would be fine, but it wasn't this time. And so, yeah, I had to, it's mowed though. It's nice. And I got, I, my wife said it looked nice, which is That's you know, the, gr- the ultimate compliment. If you want to make your lawn mowing partner feel good, whoever you are, Tell them the lawn looks nice, honey. And whoever it is that's doing that, you, you that's that's a winner. So, yeah, just letting you know. A little Miss, inside scoop there. Mrs. told me that the other day. I was beaming for a week. Oh, yeah. It made oh, yeah. my week. So, I just want to announce to everybody, we have a guest. This week, we are joined by one of the great modern figures of college football. A visionary thought leader in enjoying all aspects of the sport. Our guest completely changed how a large number of people now engage with college football. A social media celebrity and former guest on the Paul Feinbaum show. Who? San Antonio's biggest fan of the UTEP New Mexico State rivalry, founder of the Sickos Committee, and ULM's biggest supporter. I'd also like to add my personal friend, Commissioner Escalante. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on, and and you flatter me. I I, I know it's not a visual medium, but I, I'm I'm blushing a little bit and just laughing, and everything you said because there's some sort of grain of truth to it. <laughs> I mean, I'm we only st- deal in the truth when we talk when we feed our master. I mean, I mean, I'm still laughing how I got on Feinbaum. Uh, Who? Yeah, exactly. That's right. I mean, I he hasn't interviewed anybody, so. No, I have no small idea. local program, right? Small local <laughs> program. Call in show. It's Ain't a, recorded anyone, Paul. Yeah, it's a call in show. It's a call in show. That's it. So I called in. That's what it was. No, that was one of the weirdest emails I think we've ever gotten to our committee's email account. It's like, hey, uh, we kind of we, we dig your vibe on the Fine Bomb show, and I was like, what is this? Is this a joke? <laughs> is somebody pranking me? Uh, but. You know, it wound up happening, and I mean, I I kind of blacked out in the interview. I'll be honest. I I honestly just, you know, I I really don't remember what I said. I I mentioned about being in the Terry Bowden fan club. Uh, I mentioned being, I would say, you know, one of our games of the week was like New Mexico, New Mexico State. I love the Potato Bowl, and I think. I coined a phrase, and then now we sell merchandise off of it. <laughs> Amazing stuff, too. Bro. Yeah, I love just, it. I'm uh, still the, waiting on it in this household. Uh, I mean, you know, again, tell me, tell me that our supply is people are buying our stuff too much. We've run out of stock. <laughs> print, print on demand is running out yeah, of stock. It's there's there's too much demand to print on demand. So definitely uh, an interesting time. I, I can't. Again, this is something that that started out of we just wanted to make inside jokes, um, you know, on the Twitter account. Like the inside we had, it started an inside Discord because, you know, we're trying to figure out different ways to watch all the games that we were lucky to have during the COVID season. 
because I mean we right. didn't we didn't care what it was because I mean we needed some sort of entertainment. And then you know down the line we started tweeting in 2021. This is our third season of tweeting games, which is nuts. And you know we got a podcast, Substack, Patreon, merchandise. I mean I don't. I have no idea what's going on. And uh, hold, hold on, Kamish. Hold uh-oh. on, Kamish. Jeff, g- give us a live update. What just happened? Uh, Kaya Saka just nailed a penalty uh, that was won by Fabio Vieira. Um, nice. What's the score? 1-1. One, one. It is now one all at the Emirates. Uh, there is still about 20 minutes left um, plus stoppage. Right. So still time hey. uh, for Escalante and yes. I's. Uh, gunners Come to get gunners. get three points out of this. Right. Hey, Kamish. Yeah. Kamish, we, we ask all of our guests a series of questions when they join. This okay. is kind of our way of welcoming you to feed your mascot. Number one, what fandom or fandoms are you representing today? I mean, you know, I root for the ULM Warhawks because I attended school there and uh, I've I've just followed them and just just want. You know, really, I just want six and six in a bowl game and I'm happy. Uh, that's all I really want from them. Six and six. And what about beating game. Alabama again? Uh, you know, again, that's in the past. <laughs> I, I doubt that happens again. Maybe when they transition coaches in the future, um, whenever that ever happens, you know, Saban leaves and then we can catch the new coach in the first year when they don't have their players in. Maybe we can do that again because that's how we got Saban. The element of surprise. So uh, and then, I mean, we did the get trickiest a, of mascots. We the did. Warhawk. We did get, you know, Arkansas, number eight, Arkansas. But that was after the Petrino incident. Uh, and then their coach was John L. Smith. Well, <laughs> hey, man, that guy. <laughs> it counts. Ooh, boy, it counts. He lost to Rutgers twice. It counts. It counts. Still Which counts. scoreboard gave me so much joy. If I can ask a quick question, what is a factoid about you that isn't really widely known? Well, Maybe you could figure it out from the Twitter account, uh, account but I originally wanted to be a meteorologist. Uh, I wanted to be the Jim Cantori in the weather, like the yes. man in the weather reporting when like signs are flying by you and branches of trees. I wanted to do that. Uh, there was just one problem. I could not get past calculus two. Uh, I, I mean, I could oh, not do man. it. It never clicked. Do we have to rehash this again, Jeff? I, I mean, just... <laughs> Like, if I could ever get past it, it's fine. So this is kind of why I do, like, the sickos, like, warning, watch, alert thing. This is kind of a way, sure. like, an, uh, like, hey, I could have been a meteorologist, but my brain could never figure out calculus. Uh, or I, I just couldn't figure it out. I, I just couldn't do it. And then back, I'm old. It was back before, like, computers were really, really, like, hey, you could just do this with, like, a calculator now. Uh, it was just like, you know. I could not do it. I had to switch my major. I probably switched my major about, I'm looking at about eight times. We got another update. We got another live yeah. update. Uh, Eddie just nailed one in the uh, back of the net. So that is goal for another goal for Arsenal there. The, now uh, two to one. We, we called Eddie and Ketia. Yep. So we're so so Arsenal is up to one. Is yeah, that correct? Man, that's all, I'm, I'm that liking correct. this. Got to stay on the podcast now. It's good luck. I like this. Let's, let's go. Let's <laughs> <keep going>. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you'll be back. That's all I can say. Every game. Uh, uh, our final. Qu- oh, oh go ahead. Ahead. no, go ahead. we're good. We're good for there. Final question: What is your favorite obscure rule of football? All right. So 
college football, they, they have this rule that has only been called like two or three times ever in the history of college football. Um, I just did a Patreon podcast on one of them. Uh, it's the palpably unfair act rule. <laughs> and I remember this. this. This rule is is just amazing. But I did a Patreon podcast uh, on the 1953 Alabama uh, team. Uh, I do like sicko season reviews on our Patreon. I've done about six. It's called Commission's Corner. Shout out to Patreon. Yeah, shout, a, out, shout out to Patreon. So I did that, and that year Alabama was six, three, and three. So six wins, three losses, three ties. They finished four zero and three in the SEC, and they won the SEC at four zero and three. Amazing, uh, and, amazing. And just ties everywhere in the, in the SEC. Nobody had more than four wins, and and the only team that was undefeated was Alabama. They went to play Rice in the in the uh, Cotton Bowl. Uh, so Rice is up seven six, and then they're about to break another long run. The running back. Uh, on the sideline for Alabama, comes out of the sideline and tackles the Rice running back onto the field, hopefully hopefully getting a, trying to get an illegal participation uh, penalty and only five yards from the spot, whatever. Uh, no, the ref invoked the palpably unfair act rule and granted him a 95-yard touchdown run when he was tackled, <laughs> when he was tackled yep. at the 38-yard uh, line. That's um, it. It's a great rule. It's a great rule. And yeah. It's only happened like very, very a few, few times. times. So uh, I think the nearest one that we could have seen like in the NFL was when Mike Tomlin tried to trip Jacoby Jones yes. a little bit. On that kickoff on return. On that kickoff yep. return. That's right. Yep. So it, it's it's only happened, I think, twice. It was in 1918 and 1954 in that, in that bowl. Um I think there was another one. Uh, they threatened to use it when Bills fans were throwing snowballs at the Dolphins in the NFL. They sure uh, did. They, they sure did. They didn't they use it. They, they threatened to use it against the Giants fans yes. as well when they were throwing snowballs against the Vikings while the Vikings were blowing them out in the playoffs. This is many years ago. Yeah. Still in Giants. How have they never used it against Philly fans? Because Philly or are the refs too concerned about their own well-being, which is that's a part fair of enough. That's a part of it. But so. also because Philly fans... Philly used to be really, really bad, and it would have never like the touchdowns were getting scored against Eagles fans anyway. So, (laughs) but the the, the spirit of the rule is if an ineligible player does takes an act that prevents what would be a sure touchdown, the refs have the discretion to award a touchdown to the opponent's team. And I, I have only seen it could have happened once in the NFL with the Steelers, which they they didn't, but they did find Mike Tomlin $100,000. Uh, Coach Tomlin, they find him $100,000. So it's, uh, it's very funny when it happens. I would love to see it again. Uh, the inverse of that is when a player is celebrating and they throw a 15-yard penalty on them, mm. which happened to uh, the LSU Tigers punter Brad on that fake field goal attempt, which... I still think is very bad and we should just allow touchdowns to happen along the celebrations. Yeah. That being said, I'm going to move on to our menu. We've got ourselves a soul food episode, folks. This week, we're talking about the Mississippi Valley State University, the Delta Devils. And we're going to talk about their entire university. Our sneak of taste is going to be Itabina and the Mississippi Delta. I'm very fortunate to have the the, the, the co hosts and hosts that I have because they went out there and they built this entire script from scratch. And we're going to let Josiah kind of take us through 
How did we get here? And how did a school just show up in the middle of Itabina, Mississippi? From there, we're going to then talk about some football. And that's why the Mississippi Valley Delta Devils and their team and how they came to be and what they've been through, their trials and tribulations. And then we're going to talk about the table of sweets, which Jeff has said he's going to do a live review on this. We're going to be talking about tamales, folks. And I'm excited (laughs) because wonderful, wonderful food. And this area has their own flavor. I'm going to turn it over to Josiah. Tell me about Itabina and the Mississippi Delta. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for those of you that don't know, Mississippi Valley State University is technically not in Itabina, but it is very close to it, um, functionally in Itabina. And it's Itabina, like a bunch of other towns in the area is in the farm country called the Mississippi Delta, which if you don't know, you may have heard the term. It's not actually a formal river delta. It's not like correct that matters that much. But you know, when you're talking about it, it's really just a floodplain. And so there's a lot of levees out there. There's a lot of that. You know, when you look at some of the farmhouses while you're driving through that part of the country, you'll see some of them built up on a big hill because that way they wouldn't get flooded out whenever the water came through. But we're going to talk about this a little bit just to give some context, because when you're understanding a school, all politics are local. And it's good to know when you see an HBCU located out in this part of the country, what specifically that means. Because we we talk about HBCUs, what their contexts are, the things that they have, that they struggle, and that are unique to those institutions for lots of different reasons. And it's good to know sort of where this place was built and then we'll talk about sort of why it was built. Um, if you don't know much about the Delta, it is, like I said, farm country. It is a majority black population in the whole region. Mississippi is a politically purple state, but it ends up majority being very conservative. But when you look at the way that the population is put together, the way that people uh, vote and the way that, you know, it's a, it's a very diverse population in some ways, in ways that people are surprised to hear about because of the history of this state. Um, and this is uh, this is a part of the country where you can really see a lot of that horrible history, where you got that nice big white house on a hill, and then you drive about half a mile down the road, quarter mile, and you'll see a town full of lots of little houses where a majority black population is living, and you're kind of like, okay, this looks like something that was built a long time ago, and it's just kind of persisted through. So you see a lot of the imprints of the history of this state on the actual current geography and current layout of how things are. I want to jump in really quickly, Josiah, and that's a really good explanation of how we got there. And you've got a note specifically saying NVSU is in a real rock and a hard place situation. (laughs) And it is incredibly so because this was born out of a compromise, right? So you're a Klinga alumni, and so you know that's one of the prestigious schools of the Magnolia State. Uh, they're a great rival. The University of Mississippi is the other prestigious school. And then we've got a third prestigious school. That's Southern Miss, Southern Southern yes. Mississippi University, the, Gold, the, the Golden Eagles. Great school, mm-hmm. a lot of great alumni that have done great things. One in particular has done some not so great things. But putting all that to the side, <laughs> go Bears. <laughs> putting all that to the side, I, I, these are three premier institutions that are basically what nourished the higher education in the Magnolia State in Mississippi. But then we have the other side of that coin. A lot of a lot of black people in Mississippi, by percentage of the state, with the highest yes. percentage of African Americans, are those of the African yes. diaspora. And then we have 
two of the great HBCUs. So we have the Ag School, Alcorn State University, originally Alcorn Agricultural and Industrial up there in, in, in that part of Mississippi. And then down in the capital, we got Jackson State University, well known for being one of the largest HBCUs by number and one of the most diverse research HBCUs that we have. But then the specter of integration shows up. And to keep the African-American and Mississippi fought integration very hard. So Brown v. Education happens. Mississippi (laughs) really struggles against this as we we talk about Governor Wallace a whole lot in their in their 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 brother state, Alabama. We don't talk so much about what was happening in Mississippi. And as a compromise in 1950, we get. Mississippi vocational. So. I want you to kind of walk us through this. And then, uh, Kamish, if you can jump in after this point, you have a part about the floodplain. A lot of New Orleans, they they romanticize this. We see the riverboats and the, the water rises up and we, we grow the best food in the world. And all of our great history is in the muddy, muddy water. We get the catfish and all of the great things you hear about Louisiana and the Mississippi River. That reality is a little bit different for the Mississippi Delta. So Josiah, walk us through that. And when he gets done, Kamish, can you kind of walk in and maybe give us how other parts view these floods that happen when the Mississippi does so? Yeah, we've got, with the floodplain, it's, you know, it, there's a lot of, um, it's a lot of poverty there. And it, I think the flooding has probably made infrastructure, physical stuff, a little harder to build. But even when it's been there, being in a place that's so flat and has been so agriculturally focused, but sometimes just cotton focused, which cotton's hard on the soil. It really, it's not, and they yeah. would not rotate crops. They wouldn't do it. It was, they were told, Hey, do this. And people just wouldn't do it. Um, my dad was an so, ag professor. At it's State not just the years. telling too. It's just, you may not be able to afford to take a one year hit on your most valuable crop. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, my, my dad knew a kid who would brag about his family's farm when he was a faculty at the state. And, you know, he was talking about how, yeah, they wouldn't do anything with the cotton and it would fail, but they were fine because, you know, they had insurance on it, so they'd be okay about that. But, I mean, it's hard on the soil even now, and, and people are right. really, you know, still committed to it um, in, in a, in a kind of, <laughs> it feels really bad. Um, but it is a very poor part of the country. A, a deeply impoverished region in a deeply impoverished state. And it's really important to emphasize this. So when you see an institution like the Valley rising up kind of out of this landscape, universities like that can actually be really stabilizing forces because they're funded from outside. They can give people jobs. It's an educational opportunity. They can be really important, even if they're just tiny little schools. I mean, MBSU's 2,400 students. Right. It's not a big college. It's really, really small. Um, but it's extremely important for an area where opportunities are small. And then for the majority black population, their opportunities are even smaller because of lots of stuff that's been there for decades, generations, and in lots of ways still persists. Kamish, I want you to jump in here really quickly as, as someone from the region with an understanding of some of these dynamics. Walk us through how the Mississippi has, it brings life to so many things, but also it, it's harmful to others. Would you mind doing that for us? 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know how, how far you want me to get into, like, who lives where or whatever. Because, I mean, if you look at <laughs> Wherever New Orleans, you feel comfortable. Well, I mean, if you look at New Orleans, I, I went to school uh, at an all-boys Catholic school uh, in the lower ninth ward of New Orleans. So I am in a weird enclave uh, of New Orleans, which basically it's a historic, uh, you know, all-boys Catholic school in the lower ninth ward. So we're completely surrounded by the complete opposite of what we are essentially uh, in this case. So, I mean, the lower ninth ward is protected by giant levees, which, I mean, if you remember Hurricane Katrina, which, you know, I, I lived through it sure. uh, personally, um, the lower ninth ward had incredible flooding because really the lower ninth ward probably shouldn't exist uh, in the way that it, it does, but they built an industrial canal in New Orleans um, and basically segmented off a uh, part of the population there. So that industrial canal, they built that to have like boats and ships, uh, you know, go through because New Orleans is a giant port. And the Lower Ninth Ward, if if you ever go to the Lower Ninth Ward of New Orleans, you drive across like the St. Claude Bridge or the Judge Seber uh, Bridge, and you see the levees basically 15 feet taller than where where the houses are. So no matter how tall you build your house on how, how stilts, you can't be above the levee because, I mean, really itself, you're, you're, you're basically below sea level and there, there probably shouldn't be any, any civilization there. But there is uh, because, I mean, nobody wants to leave New Orleans because it's, it's a magical place. So uh, did I lose somebody? No, oh, okay, we're sorry. actually, uh, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff is showing us yeah. a quick map. Um, so, yeah, if you don't mind. If you could see the, visual, the region, it says, it says Holy Cross right there. That's where Holy Cross used to be, uh, right there, right in the lower Ninth Ward. So, uh, right on the Mississippi River, protected by a levee. We used to run levees for, like, baseball and football. Uh, really close to the Chalmette Battlefield, not too far away at all. There's, like, a wetland trail on the other side. Um, it, that, after Katrina, that school moved. Like it, it got condemned, flooded, uh, and they moved it. So you can see like remnants of the school in the lower ninth ward. But really, it, it, it's probably one of the testaments to man that people even live there, uh, along with the New Orleans East area. It's, it's, it's not an area you should be living in. And when you look at the maps of New Orleans, probably back in the early 1800s, they built the town to just be like the French Quarter right on top of the river because anything behind that, it, it was basically uninhabitable. But now everybody lives there. And so you got to build up. Um, you got to build the city up. Regarding Mississippi River Delta, I mean, you're fighting a, you're fighting nature and, and it's always going to be a losing mm -hmm. battle. And especially with, you know, the climate change and everything like that, it's going to change. What you were talking about, the soil, um, you know, not changing the soil or anything like that. And not rotating your crops. New Orleans had an opportunity to do that because they had better uh, soil a little bit than the Mississippi Delta. Uh, they, right. they would rotate. They, there would be some cotton on the plantations. They had chances because it was so wet, sugarcane and then rice. So there was like crops they could do that. Because some of the fields themselves were just rice fields and they had to be underwater because essentially it would flood so much they couldn't grow cotton. Right. Uh, so there, there's a different dimension to that. And then when you drive up uh, from New Orleans to go to like Jackson, uh, Vicksburg, 
you know, Oxford, if you make a trip to Starkville up I-55, uh, really to get out of Louisiana, you're over like like Pontchartrain, Lake Bourne, Lake Maurepas. I mean, just just lakes, nothing but everything draining from the Mississippi down there. And so when the the banks of the Mississippi tops, it's it's just basically it's a giant floodplain. And so it's it's just constantly wet. And what we have, <laughs> there's kind of a saying in New Orleans is what what is damp may never dry. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and it's never dry. That's always that's always why the humidity is uh, is a hundred percent there at, at all times. Oh my times. gosh! Yeah, 100%. yes, always, always a hundred percent. I know you talk about Katrina. Um, one of the most amazing things that I remember. Um, I talk about it a lot. I was a reservist in the Navy at the time, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, even though I was a sub sailor, we we were all on hand, hands on, and the liberty and the tranquility. Um, to me, the, the the hope and the tranquility, those are two naval hospital ships showed up outside of New Orleans and they were ferrying people back and forth. Um, and it was one of the most, if you could imagine an aircraft, a ship the size of an aircraft carrier, but a floating hospital. And when the most of the hospitals in the area were unusable, the people of New Orleans saw those ships with the, the giant red cross on them and say, we're here. The Navy is here to help you. Um, the event wasn't perfect, but it did. It gave... <laughs> It did bring hope and tranquility to a lot of people, and I, I I do sincerely hope that was the case. That was a that was oh, a ahead. weird commission. Yeah, we uh, we evacuated. So I worked a wedding the night before we evacuated. So I was I was bartending a wedding, um, yeah. the night before, and then it's a wedding with they didn't have any alcohol, so it was like the Welch's sparkling. So I'm bartending like sure. Welch's sparkling, uh, and they wanted to have it outside, but the wind is blowing all the chairs they had outside. Uh, and they, so they wanted it like the reception outside and, and that's August 28th or August 27th. I'm like, what are you doing with an August wedding outside? <laughs> anyway, in New Orleans, insane. Uh, insane. But then I bartended that wedding. I got home probably about, I'd say about 11 p.m. that night. And then I was living with my mom Uh and I was like, okay, if the storm gets worse, wake us up. We're going to go. We're going to drive nine hours to Jacksonville with my aunt uh, on I-10. And she woke me up at like 5 a.m. through half my belongings in the back of my GMC Jimmy and, and just, just took off at 5.30 in the morning with half of my stuff, nine hours for, straight. Hold on, hold on, Kamish. For, for young folks, the GMC Jimmy was <laughs> an impossible <laughs> to kill truck it was. back in the day. It was a beast. <laughs> The only thing that it was killed a tank on on. I, I'm just gonna say that it died on the way back. Um, but oh. so oh. Uh, I, I'll tell you why it died. But basically, we we're in. We wound up going to like Vero Beach, Florida, where my grandparents were, and we had to stay there for like a month because they wouldn't let us back in. Uh, then we drive back right. from like Vero Beach, and on the way back, I get to uh, the interchange of I-10 and I-55, uh, right in right in a town they call Laplace, uh, which is just basically a fancy French word for the place. Uh, and, <laughs> and we get to this gas station and we're like, this may be the only gas station that has gas. So let's get some gas. So I get the gas and I got the bottom of the barrel and it just shot my whole fuel system of the GMC Jimmy. And so it died like an hour away from my home, like on that whole drive back. I'm like, this is not going to get any worse. Just, I still I pass by that gas station when I'm driving from New Orleans back to like San Antonio back and forth, and I'm like I remember you for ruining the gym. 
<laughs> I did get a new car out of it, but it, it sucked that the, the car died then. Uh, but just basically yeah. the entire fuel line, just fuel pump, fuel engine, just done on like apparently it was like tomato soup gas. So it was the bottom of the barrel. Oh no! Yeah. So I, yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Oh, it's okay. Rest so. rest in peace, Jimmy. We're good. So <laughs> I want to ask Josiah here. You've got some good things that come out of this, yeah. namely the blues. Walk us through that. Oh yeah. It talk about it infrastructure. It talk, down in, talk about some culture. Yeah, it ain't all bad down in down in uh, down in the Delta. Um, there's you know there's a very strong case to be made that most modern American music birthed out of this region with the blues and rock and roll having a strong claim. I mean, obviously. And jazz, baby. Yeah, and jazz. There are lots of other areas, of course, that have had strong influences. But you got people like Elmore James, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, B.B. King himself from the Itabina area. You know, the Duke concerts back in that area. Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got, there's an insane amount of culture in that comes out of that area. Remembering some um, guys, right, Josiah? Yeah, remembering <laughs> some guys. I mean, and my sister used to live in Leland, which is where Jim Henson was born. Or, well, maybe he was born in Greenville, but that's down the road. He lived in Leland for a long time. There's a there's a tiny little museum out there right around the spot where he used to live. And it's, you know, not much to look at, but it's 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 that place. So, you know, yeah. Does you this technically t- make uh, It's Not Easy Being Green a Delta Blues uh, yeah, yes. it's, got, and, and it's got some soul behind it. Kermit, Kermit can crank it, it out. It does. It ain't easy. Kermit the Frog I mean, here, reporting live, talking about <laughs> Piggy, Miss Piggy. But yeah, I, I want to talk about it for a second, Jeff, because the great migration happens in this. Now, my my grandfather it was very my father's father, uh, the Reverend uh, Reverend Mayhem. He was a part of this and went from. Alabama up to Cleveland, then up to Detroit, where my father was born. Talk about that a little bit and how that migration pattern affected Chicago. Yeah, so a lot of how some of the specific migration patterns during the Great Migration were tied to is essentially where railroads were. And that also kind of is also where roads and highways are. So we, um, Escalante talked a little bit earlier about I-55, which goes straight up to Chicago. Um, so a lot of people from the Edomina region in search of work, um, potentially get out of kind of a lot of the conditions in Mississippi in the time, the kind of interwar period, um, and particularly during World War II, where war industry was really ramping up and needed people, um, moved north towards Chicago, which also brought the blues, um, I'll talk about it a little bit later, but also brought um, some culinary traditions from the Mississippi Delta region up to Chicago. So sure Chicago did. is one of the centers of blues in the U.S. because of this migration pattern that brought people from um, the Delta up to um, Chicago. Yeah, there's. I, it, it's funny. Oh, go ahead. No, there, there's a there's a famous Amtrak line. Uh, that that runs from mm-hmm. New Orleans to Chicago, and I, I've taken that train a couple times. And I, I think this one's called the Spirit of New Orleans. I'm not 100 percent sure if that's what it is. Uh, yeah, there's there's two that go. There's the Sunset Limited that goes from New Orleans all the way to L.A. Then there's the the Spirit of New Orleans. I think it goes Chicago uh, to um, yeah Chicago to New Orleans up and down. Uh, basically, I-55, and then. There's another one that leaves New Orleans 
it goes through like Atlanta and gets to like DC, um, which is another train that I've taken. So th- those have been those have been some fun trips to, to go on the trains. But yeah, I fifty five is 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 kind of like an underrated, I would say, uh, part of America that you know everybody talks about the East and West, like traveling and stuff like that. But like fifty five, uh, it's the city of New Orleans. All right, close enough. Uh, but there's that that interstate is is just chock full of of like Americana. It's it's ridiculous on what you go through. You go New Orleans, you go through uh, you know Hammond, where southeastern Louisiana is. You get Jackson, you get Jackson State. Then you go up to Memphis. Memphis from there, you get a little bit of St. Louis flavor, and then you know you're going straight through mm-hmm. Illinois to, to to straight to Chicago. So I mean, it's just. I think it ends in Chicago, I believe, right? I think so. I think um, so, yeah. Yeah, I'll say, I think I've really only encountered... My cat like, is making a little bit of noise. I've really only encountered it uh, <laughs> as the thing that crosses I-70 at Effingham. Because um, we visit our... Uh, my most family lives out in St. Louis. So um, that becomes a very critical spot to uh, get gas and get dinner. Because there's quite a lot of options for both out in uh, Effingham. Um, and I mean, my, I guess what's kind of surprising, my mom's dad grew up in East St. Louis and even during the period where he was growing up. So he was born in the early twenties. This would have been the mid, mid thirties. Um, there was, you know, a lot of people that were around him were people that had, um, moved from kind of Mississippi region and, you know, introduced him to a lot of things culinarily, uh, which is why this random uh, Jewish grandpa in Indiana is very good at making ribs. Just like the great Bruno Mars said, <laughs> ride to Harlem, Hollywood, Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, yeah. If we show up, we're going to show out smoother than a fresh jar of Skippy. So I want to kind of get one last point in from Josiah here about population and then I want to get to the main event. Let's talk about some football. Josiah, I, I really want to talk about this bullet of how the town doubles the moment the school shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, as someone who lived in Mississippi for over a decade, there are a lot of little towns. And yeah. it's, it's, and especially in the Delta, there is just, there is not much out there in terms of conveniences. Like I said, my sister lived there for a years um they and i mean uncle ben's rice has a factory out there sure does and, and but that doesn't mean that they've attract they've got employees and you know, they, it, you know but that doesn't mean that there's like a huge hub of folks living out there it's just there's not much there and so when you look at a place like itabina with its you know it's got people that have lived there some of them pretty famous um you know a lot of just normal people but when you put this college here in that area, it, it it doubles the population, and it's funny because that's the same thing that happens on a larger scale at Mississippi State and Starkville. It almost doubles the population of the town when you put MSU into Starkville. Um, it, not exactly, not quite doubles, but I mean, it, I mean, mo- most college towns have that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you would not really have Bloomington without IU. There's not really a ton of, of industry yeah. there, and it's very much a town that the nature of the town is, is built by the college and it's very unlike even similarly sized um, towns in Indiana around it, like Columbus. Can, 
can I just get yeah. like break down a map of Please. where this where this this city is? It is. So it's it's two uh, basically two hours from Jackson, two hours from Vicksburg, two hours from Memphis, and and a little bit uh, <laughs> like two hours from Monroe, Louisiana, and and maybe about two, two, a little bit over than two hours from Little Rock. It's it's just <laughs> it is. It's a paraphrase of. Oh, brother, yeah. Arthur, it's a geographical oddity. It's two hours. From it, it essentially is. What a great movie. What a great movie. I'm sorry. Josiah, that I, it is, it is. My it really Vietnam is. vet dad yeah. pops mayhem. Yeah. Like he watched this movie and it like, it blew his mind a little, but when I started mm-hmm. to explain it to him, that it's really the odyssey and just like John Goodman is the Cyclops. <laughs> what? I mean, just like. He would be oh. shocked if we did, that other people would love this movie the way he did. But I really everyone wanna, in Mississippi loves this movie. It's it's oh yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great such, one. Yeah. I want to stump yeah. for what you're saying because we talk about conferences that are local and you can drive everywhere to get to it. Everything you just said, it's two hours from Jackson to play their rival, the Tigers. It's two hours from Alcorn to play the, the Land Grant. It's two hours from Pine Bluff to play the Golden Lions. It's two hours from Grambling to play the Tigers. It's two hours from Southern in Baton Rouge. You can get to the whole conference right here in Itabina. And that's, again, an amazing thing that they have in common with everyone in their conference in the SWAC. So that leads us directly in. Josiah, we started this school, Mississippi Vocational in 1950, but we didn't play football immediately. When did we start putting helmets on and putting people on the field? They started that up three years after they formally came into existence in 1950. So 1953 is the first football season. Um, some quick background on the school, and then we'll, you know, y'all really take over on the football part. But um, like like Lou mentioned, this is a school that was founded for two reasons. One, to try to give more support for educating African-Americans. It was also founded at the same time to resist integration because then you can funnel certain populations away from the prominent PWIs. Um, and and that that was a strategy. They said, well, okay, we'll build a college over here to try to, you know, the gravitational pull will keep people from making it to the other schools. Then we can deny entry. And there were parts of... Uh, there have been there were schools in Mississippi that were functionally not integrated into the nineties. I mean, you know, they had they had a diverse population, but it was it was very small. Um, you know, and so there even now that Mississippi State, I know, and, and Mississippi have worked to, to make those to offset that, but you know, it's still it's still not reflective of the state population by any means. So this school was has served some really great purpose, but you know, it's, it's, it was also created for very, very troubling reasons among others. Um, but it's progress as a school has been pretty normal from that point on, you know, they've, they started giving, uh, they became a state college in 64, came to state U 74, offered their first master's in 76. Uh, currently, you know, like you said, 2400 students. So, you know, it's it's done the thing that a college does. It, it's grown. It's expanded its mission, but it's kept its focus on doing its 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 job as an educational institution. 
I want to jump in really quickly about that progression, because you see this start as a vocational school to teach working skills. Then it becomes a college to teach liberal arts skills. And then it becomes a university by quirk of Mississippi saying, well, Jackson State College, you're no longer Jackson State College or Jackson State University. Alcorn, A&I, you're no longer A&I. You're Alcorn State University. Oh, we got those other guys, too. Uh, all right, you're a university now. And so with that, your status changes and you can offer the graduate degrees and you can start to do research and you can gain swagger by calling yourselves a university. Now, you'll see me tie this in. Norfolk State and MVS, you have a lot in common besides the green. Small state schools find it in, founded in the worst of situations who become universities because Norfolk State followed the same trajectory to becoming a university. And so I want to point this out because it's a small school. Josiah keeps pointing it out. It's, a, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's hard to get enrollment up. But they start that football team and they start bringing people in. Mm -hmm. And then we got our first coach. And this is a name, y'all, I want you to get ready for this. First head coach's name, Cleophis Hatcher. Coach, ha coach Hatcher shows up Ooh. and he says, we're gonna. No, I mean, I mean, oh, I hope. It's a great I hope name. you never like went by Cleo. Like, call no. me Cleophis. Oh yeah, he always yes, went man. by Cleophis. Coach, Good, Coach Cleophis Hatcher. That's right. First year, he's a West Virginia State alumni, HBCU in the great state of West Virginia, the Mountaineer State, and he goes two and four. They play six games. He wins two of them. That's it. He's followed up by first team All Name American. Coach Ulysses Simpson Killer McPherson Jr. Oh, man. <laughs> that is a name. That is another. Oh, gosh. Is, is, he is, was, is Ulysses ahead, Simpson like, like the brother of Abraham Simpson? I mean. Could be. <laughs> Could be. God, two strong names. Amazing. Oh, for, first, te first team, all names. Jeez. This is wonderful. He comes from Tennessee Agricultural and Industrial at the time. So this is before Tennessee State is known as Tennessee State. Still the only public HBCU in the volunteer state. He has a winning record. So we talk a lot about pain with this school. He goes 26-8-2 and, and wins the SCAC three times in a row. So he's winning this small conference of HBCUs and does it with flair. But after him, we get Coach Leroy Smith. He only coaches for a year, goes two, five, and one. Then we get John Anthony Bell. He coaches for two years, and he's the first alumni who he played under Coach Cleophis Hatcher. And he takes them out into independence and wins 21 games and loses 19. So we already have two coaches with winning records. He also becomes the first AD. So prior to him, there was no athletic director. He takes over as the first one. Then we take Doug Porter. He shows up. He shepherds them in for a couple of years. And then we get Coach Maddox. He goes and has a losing record. But the connection here is that he coaches Norfolk State for one season. And we're going to see a couple of coaches go from Mississippi Valley to Norfolk State University. Behold, he goes 11-21-1 and, and never wins, a, never has a winning season down by Virginia's Golden Shore. We next have Willie Glossett, who coaches for a year. Then we have Coach Davis Weathersby, who coaches for eight seasons and goes 33-45. and 45. And after him, we have Jim Thomas, who only coaches for two seasons. And then, again, all 
all-time great team name. Coach Archie the Gunslinger Cooley blows into town. And Kamish, I want you, we talked lovingly about this man. I want you to bring out what you still got and talk about the Gunslinger for oh, me. Don't mind. All right. So let me let me just give you some background of this this coach this legend. Uh, I I have the book in my cart and I, I should really just buy it and read it. But there there's a book on Amazon. I think it's about thirty bucks. Uh, it's called Archie Gunslinger Cooley: The Making of a Football Legend. Uh, it's by Daryl uh, C. Gaines and, and John M. Branson the uh, third. It's it, it it looks all right. Cooley's hat game is absolutely amazing. If you want to look up Cooley and his <laughs> his hats, um, it is man. I mean, his hat so game is just phenomenal. Uh, so he played for uh, Jackson State as a center and linebacker in 1960. So you know, naturally, a center and linebacker would turn out to be an offensive genius, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's that's where you get your inspiration. You know, it's great. I mean, there's an interesting, interesting thing of I. I feel like the people that really understand the offense the most, probably among them, is the center because you, gotta, you you have to understand what the quarterback needs as well as you're understanding all the blocking schemes. Right. You got to um, know, where. and so that I mean that is an act, a natural progression, yeah. and it's an interesting. And, there are interesting things of of who typically ends up being O line coaches and how that's one of the big pathways into being an offensive coordinator. So another thing, what about um, the center is you got to know where everybody's going to go. So you can set everything. And then also kind of the quarterback of the defense is the linebacker, right? The quarterback of the defense. So you got to know where everybody's going to go. So, I mean, he played both sides of the ball. And as a coach, it's kind of a natural fit. It seems to not be intuitive. Like, hey, a great offensive mind is not, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, beautiful hat. Is that Willie Stargell right oh next to him gosh. with the hat? I mean, or was he wearing a Pirates oh, hat? I'm sorry. These are great hats. Right. Y'all got to look These hats are amazing. Um, so Cooley began his coaching career at Southside High School in Heidelberg, Mississippi, uh, where he began his career. And he worked for seven years. Then from 1971 to 73, he was a linebacker and defensive line coach at Alcorn, a rival of Mississippi Valley State. Then he moved to Tennessee State from 1974 as a linebacker coach. Uh, and then from there, in 1980, he was hired uh, at Mississippi State. So he, uh, Mississippi Valley State. Apologize, Josiah. I don't mean to <laughs> get it confused. <laughs> it's- I always forget the Valley. I don't know why, but it's, it's, it's MVSU will, will be a little bit better. MVSU? Yeah. So at Tennessee State, since he was kind of like an assistant ch- uh, coach in charge of the scout team, he started to develop some offensive plays to run. Uh, the, against the first string in practice. So his playbook started to grow from there. It consisted of hundreds of plays. Uh, in the book, it indicates that there were type of plays that any local neighborhood uh, kid playing quarterback in a pickup game could drop in the dirt using twigs and bottle caps. And they worked. So his offense was called the Satellite Express. The Satellite Express was a passing offense, which was no huddle, Great names. What name? Oh, these names. No huddle. They're so good. Uh, no huddle offense featuring five wides. So always five Oof. wides. And then Cooley led Mississippi uh, Valley State to their only Division One AA playoff appearance in 1984. Uh, the 1984 uh, Mississippi Valley State Delta Devils football team set different passing, receiving, and scoring records that featured Jerry World Rice and quarterback Willie Satellite Totten. Uh, to this day, 
Cooley is still the winningest coach in the history of the Delta Devil football program. And also, he was uh, an associate uh, professor of, of PE, physical education, at Mississippi Valley State. Their most devastating play of the Satellite Express uh, consisted of a five-receiver set, uh, sometimes lined up in the slots. Other times, they lined up in the devastating formation known as Stack, also affectionately known as the Swag Stack. So it's so good. So basically, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, it's, love it. It's just it's it's you got Jerry Rice on one side by himself, and then you got four with some hapless corner, with some, some poor corner <laughs> yeah. by himself, uh, and then you have four wide receivers just lined up in a line stacked up on the other side. <laughs> we talk about innovation at other levels of the game. You talk about Coach Gaither at FAMU, Eddie Robinson at Grambling, but innovation is happening at the HBCU level where they're running wildly innovative offensive scheme and they are running it to perfection, blowing up the stat books, running up the score. And this is all happening in the shadow of Coach Lavelle Edwards running the air raid at a small private school in Utah known as Brigham Young University, winning a national championship, I might add. And we got a small school in Itabina doing the same thing. And I do want to jump in here, too. Please, to say, please. He's got Jerry Rice. And that is that is a big deal. But one thing really good coaches do is they give their superstar space to shine. I watched Oklahoma State have a guy like Tyreek Hill. Now, as a person, whatever, but you know, there's a lot of as things a to talk about there. Yeah. But as a yeah. player, his speed in the NFL, in the NFL, is insane. And we could not figure out how to get him the ball. We, we couldn't do it. We couldn't get him the ball in space. We couldn't, you know, scheming it up, just somehow it didn't work. And when you got him the ball, it could be electric. So building, you, just because you've got an amazing player doesn't mean you're utilizing him well. And he did that too. So he's utilizing all his people, but Jerry Rice has the chance to become and, and you know, become who Jerry Rice is and to shine in that role. And that not even even with a superstar, that doesn't automatically mean that, that you're going to win. That doesn't automatically mean you're going to use him well. And he's doing both of those things. I want to. Yeah, and like, go ahead, Jeff. We've got. I think that the the we have the play art that concept. So yeah, the, the play, one of the play concepts with the stack up, and so it's Jerry Rice on one side. Which note in the playbook, <laughs> it just says Jerry Rice. Um, and then you've got your yep. all your other like, um, the, the Y, the H, the Z, the F. Yeah, yeah. They don't even. It's just like mm-hmm. no, Jerry Rice, one time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so Jerry Rice, basically, he has an option route, um, but the main route is go about 10 yards and then and then slant. Post. This is kind of um, post. This is a post route. Yeah, it's post route. And then he's got the op- an option to go off that, depending on what um, the corner's doing. And then it's basically three other deep routes on the other side, plus a little hot route by the um, F receiver. So... What is really fascinating to this is, yeah, either you have Jerry Rice that you probably can't cover <laughs> with, with a single <laughs> corner. Um, maybe, and then, you know, you maybe, you then probably move a safety over to double cover and you may not be able to double cover Jerry Rice. And then the other side then, because you've moved the safety over, you either have 
some level of mismatch from a linebacker on one of your other wide receivers. Yep. And just kind of an overload of players over there where even if you, you know, try and move additional players over to stop Jerry Rice, you now have an overload of your defenders or a mismatch. And it's, it is incredible play design. This is something that, you know, is always fascinating to see when you do have one player that is just so much at that level is how do you account for the one player and what are the other trade-offs? Um, so if you are double or triple teaming a player, that probably opens up the rest of your your players to be able to be be rather successful. It's it's amazing to watch because as you look at this, everything you see in the modern game, the RPO action, the flanker back in this one, he's running your screen. Your Jerry Rice with with the route tree, he's able to make a decision based on what he sees. You have a corner route and you have another inside go route by the inside slot receiver you're staring in the face of of a of a complex advanced offense and you may be devoting resources to the wrong place if you make the wrong choice as a defender live satellite is gonna you know satellite's gonna put it where it needs to be with accuracy it's it's wild it's it's beautiful and i love it go ahead i I love this this offense so much because i mean with the Everything's an option route. Like, there's not necessarily, everything. you know, Jerry gets to do what he wants to do. Uh, and then everything. <laughs> get open, Jerry. Get, I mean, yeah. it, it didn't seem to be hard for Jerry Rice. Uh, but, you know, the other ones, they're just like, whatever. Whatever the defense does, you react to it. And there's going to be there's going to be somebody open on the play. Uh, th- there was a downfall to the offense if the offensive line could not hold up. You know. Right. Uh, but we're only talking yeah. about the positives yeah. today. But I mean, again, yes. <laughs> there's there's a downfall to like any type of offense you run. There's always like an Achilles right. heel to it. But this is 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 one of the, you know, if you can get everybody on the same page, which is a very timing thing, and they ran this for the entire game. Like they never, they never took their foot off the gas. They just kept running this offense. It's a two minute drill, basically every single. Drive just just wearing your defense out. Um, also, probably doing it to the, your own defense uh, if it didn't go well. But again, there's there's this <laughs> downside to the other side. But if you do it well enough uh, and score enough, that nobody's going to be able to hang with you. And this is, I love the offensive innovation at this time. Like when you have, let's just say, your SEC powers or your Big Ten powers in in '84. They're running like three yards in the cloud of dust. If you could get that, yeah. And and then you have you know the gunslinger coming along, and he's he's like, screw it, we're going five wide. Uh, we're lining up in this weird formation, and we have to put seven on the line, and that's how we're going to put seven on the line, and we're going to have three back behind you, and that's it. Uh, and and you try to figure out what we do on each play because each play, uh, whatever, whatever you do, we're going to, you know, just change it up a little bit and just confuse the crap out of you. So I, I love this team so much and, and I'm glad they're in like all the hall of fames. Uh, and yeah, yes. because it's, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just a lot of fun for this season, the 84 season. Um, I want to put out here, uh, the gunslinger, Closes out his career, the winningest coach in the history of MVSU, and then takes his talents to Norfolk, to my alma mater, where he coaches for a single season, and he goes 3-7-1. and one. 
Behold. <laughs> Just to show, he, he says, I take on all the hard jobs. Y'all give it to me. I want to also note this. Willie Satellite Totten comes back as the head coach of MVSU, and he goes 31 and 57. And he's there quite a while. He leaves. He leaves after the seventh season. But now he's back as the assistant head coach, and he's the QB coach of MVSU, and he has been since 2018. So when he said, I'm going to be there for my alma mater, he meant it. His name is on the stadium. And he has called Jerry Rice to come back. So one of the things you've heard, you'll hear Jerry Rice talks all the time. I'm going to do something about our stadium. And Jerry Rice has put a lot of money into his alma mater, a thing I respect greatly. And as HBCU grad twice, uh, it's something that I, I believe strongly in always making sure you give back when you can. I also added there's other coaches that I apologize that I didn't get to, but I want to talk about one other coach because I want to really impress how hard it is at Mississippi Valley State University. One coach that we have in the modern era, he's a coach there in the mid 2000s and the aughts is Rick Comgey. Comgey coaches from 2014 to 2017 and he wins six games total for the career, though. He is 169 and 124 has two national championships, both black national championships. And just to put a little spice on it, he won the NAIA national championship with Central State University. So he went to the playoffs and won it all with them and has an undefeated 12-0 season with the Tuskegee Golden Tigers football team where they shut teams out three times. They were the the SIAC, the SEAC champions. They were the champ black national champions. They went 12 and 0 undefeated season. They were the bullies on the block in division two. He won seven conference championships and was a legitimate HBCU coach and a legitimate college head coach with over 160 games won. And as the head coach at Mississippi Valley, he could only win six games. It is a it is a tough job and a tough place. And the testament is to what these coaches could do with that. Uh, Josiah, you've got everything laid out for us here, though. Yeah. They were on the under 500 with the sickos. I will always be grateful yep. to the commissioner for inviting me on and allowing me to shine a light on something that I love, the HBCU world, and something that I'm proud to be a part of twice over. But... Give me the overall record of the Delta Devils, yeah. uh, Josiah. It's pretty rough, and in football terms, in basketball team, the basketball teams there, the Devils and the Devilettes, have had more success. But but yeah, in football, it, you know they're two hundred forty eight and and three twenty seven with ten ties. So you know under five hundred overall, despite having like you said some really good seasons and stretches and coaches and making an FCS playoff appearance, but they didn't win that game. And they don't have any FCS. They've only got one appearance, and that was it. Um, they've never won a SWAC title. They've never even, I don't think they've even been to a Celebration Bowl, never won no. any HBCU National Championship. No. And not that every team has to, but just to give a sense, there are some teams who aren't very good now, but they have a rich tradition of excellence in different eras. This is just not a team that's had that that in football. It is, it is a tough place to win. They do have, though, some of the best to ever play have played through there. We talked about Jerry Rice, but you got guys like Deacon Jones came through there. Sure did. You know, Willie Satellite Totten, Doug Porter. I mean, you know, Carl 
Byram, uh, James Haynes. You know, there have been some amazingly talented guys who have come through this program. And the region around them has produces a ton of talent, which is yeah. one yes. of the reasons that so many talented players go through there, as well as, you know, Jairus being very much overlooked by the other, by the PWIs within <laughs> oh, Mississippi. Oh, that, man. They didn't recruit you know, him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they from Octibaha were... County, right down the road from my alma mater, Mississippi State, and we didn't yeah. get him. I mean, I still yeah. like. I'm glad he went to the valley. I'm happy. Same, that, but I still think about like what could have. But been? if we'd gotten, if he was a bulldog, you know, what could what could have been? Um, but anyway, yeah, like they've had some great players go through there. It's not all doom and gloom, but it's been tough sledding. It's been a rough road for them. Let's talk about the band. What do they? What, what do we call them? What, what's going on down there, Josiah? Got ourselves the mean green marching machine with the what sack a name. dolls. They, they have so many they good are, names. They're so good. Uh, and they are also a historic band. They're the first HBCU band to be asked to perform at the Tournament of Roses, 1965. That's right. The school hadn't had only existed for like 15 years at that point. Um, and the band and less. The, first, the band less, yeah. And then they're the first HBCU to be invited back to the tournament. So first to go, first to get a get uh get an encore basically they put on a show and one of the things i really want to really want to shout out the rose bowl parade my alma mater participated last season blew everybody away i, I tell this story all the time um the other founder of the, the sickos committee uh, uh so let's say i believe jordan is what he goes by on air hopefully i don't dox you no. jordan <laughs> i love you he was former guest um on our podcast but and i tell i tell this story because i mean this story i was sitting on my couch and I saw my alma mater's band, the Spartan Legion, go by, and Jordan was the first one to text me, and he tweeted it from the account. And I was in tears because people could see the thing that I love, and they the world got an opportunity to love what I loved, no matter how brief. And when they did the show, the, the local show, and they started with the, the Behold is the name of the song. It's it's our pass and review song. There was the person that stood up, and he started to do what we do at Norfolk State. And I knew, I said, there's a Spartan there. I said, as long as one of us is there, um, then we're all there. And so they led the way for that. Mississippi Valley, the Mean Green Marching Machine led the way for that. And I will always love them because they gave that opportunity to to us. And hopefully we'll get invited back. They, The, the committee, the Council of Roses said they might. And I hope they do because I love it. I love my band and I love my alma mater and I love all HBCUs because only hundred of us left. We're trying to hold on, folks. Um, with all that said, we need to talk about the one thing we actually have around here, which is the food decor, because we feed our mascot around here. We're actually going to talk about some food. Je- Jeff, tell me about the table of sweets, which is our tamales. What, what's happening and, over here? And I will say, this is a great choice. But if you want to talk about food, Mississippi Delta's got you covered. There is a lot of good food that comes out of that area. It sure so, is. Jeff, take it anyway, away. Yeah, Jeff. Jeff. Yeah, this was something that surprised me as, as I was doing research into the Itabina area is among one of the food traditions are tamales, which are often called hot tamales. So they are referenced in a number of blues, so- blues songs. Um, uh, the Molly Man by Red Hot Olmos and Robert Johnson's They're Red Hot, which was actually recorded in San Antonio. Ooh, uh, Where's that at, Commission? I don't know. I may be familiar <laughs> with that area. I couldn't live here. Meet me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go meet. Um, Carry on, Jeff, please. But yeah, I was sort of fascinated because 
you don't necessarily immediately think uh, migration from Mexico or Central America into Mississippi. Um, so there are a number of different um, hypotheses on what the origin is that, and no one's really nailed down what the specific one might be. And it, to be honest, it could be different people introduced in different ways. So all of these could be true. Um, so one of it may be um, that it was present amongst local Native Americans um, because most Native Americans that farm farm corn. So it's not that big of a leap of steam the cornmeal. Um, there was also some post-Civil War um, migration of agricultural workers from Mexico. Yes. Um, so that is a, a one that is an immigration pathway I did not know about um, and really is not really heavily talking about talked about when talking about migration from uh, Mexico and elsewhere in Central America into the U.S. Um, there's also the possibility that veterans from the Mexican-American War um, brought this back with them to the Mississippi Delta area. Um, there's also a possibility that a different African-American dish called kush, which is a boiled cornmeal, may have also been the inspiration for um, Mississippi-style tamales. I want to really stump for that because that is a very uh, popular dish in the South. Um, it actually has a Civil War origin called sloop, where soldiers would carry, um, they would have a set of hard tack, and then because that was hard, they would put that in a skillet, they put a little water, add their cornmeal, and it came out much softer and much easier to eat. Um, and then a lot of that comes from prior cornbread. Uh, which is something I enjoy to make on Sundays. So it, there's a lot that this could be, and I like to think it's all of them. But anyways, how are these different from Mexican tamales, Jeff? Yeah, so there are some similarities. So it's typically you have a braised pork um, filling, although some other different uh, kinds of meat fillings do exist. Um, it's a similar kind set of spices, but typically in higher quantity than you normally find in a... Um, more Mexican or Central American style um, tamale. The other thing is instead of um, masa harina, which is a uh, nixtamalized corn, it is just plain cornmeal, which my guess is an availability thing. Um, that Probably. Um, not all corn goes through a, a nixtamalization process. And so, you know, the corn that does that in the U.S. typically is used for grits rather than ground into a product similar to a, to a cornmeal or a masa harina. Um, they're also simmered rather than steamed, which is a huge difference from a, you know, most other places that do tamales. It is you wrap in the corn husk and then you steam, or sometimes it's wrapped in banana leaves in, in places that um, are close to the Caribbean. Um, so that's a, a large difference. And then they tend to be smaller um as well yeah i i see that you have them here as a street food can you walk us through the male man or the moly man yeah so in a lot of places both around mississippi as well as this has come up to chicago so um a lot of times they'll be distributed in like hot dog carts right um and so there will be a a male man or a male man which is as mentioned earlier in, in blues song that would be someone that would go around and um, sell these. That's amazing. I, I, I want to, you've got some, some links here. We'll put those in the show notes. Am I right? We'll make sure we get that to people. Yeah. I'll make sure I'll, I'll put in the show notes and you're going to um, do a review. Is that right? 
I will do a review. So, okay. as mentioned earlier, the Tamale tradition from the Mississippi Delta made its way to Chicago with um, folks during the Great Migration. Um, which, one, it becomes really interesting because Chicago also has immigration from Mexico and throughout Central America. So you can find tamales in a Mexican style, in a Delta style, in a Costa Rican style, in a, in a Caribbean style. All these different styles of tamales all within Chicago. Um, the style that people call Chicago style is very similar to that Delta style. So I think the ones I got, I, there's like a ground beef filling for one. And I think the other, it's just corn and spices um there's also a very particular um food item that is a tamale topped with chili served in a hot dog yeah. bun so, um which is referred to as the oh, mother-in-law I'm, sandwich i'm looking at it it, it, <laughs> it, looks, so it looks it looks like the chicago dog but it's a tamale yeah i mean you kind of yeah. there's a tomato on top there's a pickle i think that's a pickle right uh okay. i hope so and then there's onions, and then like there's a tamale in in the bun, probably with some tamale sauce all over it. But that, that sounds. It, so it, I mean, it looks delicious. Um, looks incredible. Yeah, we got it. Oh, we got it up. Hold up. Up. Oh, 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 there it yeah. is. Yeah. So good. Oh, <laughs> links to this will be in the show notes. I mean, so you can. Yeah. This this seems like Go something. Ahead, this seems like something you're like. You're out at a bar. Filling. You're out at a bar. Yeah. And it's like yeah, 11 yeah. or it's like 2 a.m. or whatever. And you had, <laughs> yeah, you had, last call. You had a little bit too much for the night. And this is like, all right, I'm probably in trouble with my mother-in-law. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe <laughs> I'll eat one of these <laughs> because you need to, hopefully this absorbs everything and you don't get a hung, uh, you don't get hung over <laughs> after eating this because, I mean, I would oh, I would so eat good. this you yeah. know definitely eat this sober but like if if I was like tipsy or yeah. buzzed I would probably eat like oh I would more eat, so it would eat, eat this yeah. even more way way too much more <laughs> probably like two or three it looks so good <laughs> oh yeah um, and I mean what is interesting is Chicago does have a pretty big tradition of there are a number of people who will go to different bars with just like a cooler full of tamales and sell. Um, tamales to patrons and they'll just go to all the different bars and so people will actually like for a while there was a app that someone set up to track the tamale man that was you know <laughs> tracking if someone would like post on there that <laughs> one of the more famous tamale guys would go would be at a bar and so people would make sure to get to that bar do um, for the specific tamale download the tamale tracker <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sold. Downloading right now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. I was like, or so or what typically will happen in uh, our house that if I say hey when there's a big family gathering, I'll make tamales. That some people will sneak away and just get mildly trashed, and uh, then come back as the rest of us are like mostly done with making the tamales and they don't want to make them but they will need them <laughs> hey we're all, that's what we're about right making sure everybody gets yeah. what they need when they need it yeah. oh man what a what an episode uh commish thank you thank you thank you so much for joining us this has been a long time coming um i count you among one of my great friends we're going to watch many games over the course of the season uh hopefully you and i can get down to the bayou classic one of these days and uh 
root for either Grambling or Southern or both. I, can, I can't. Uh, I can't declare sides. I can't do that. You know, I'm not. I know you can't. I, <laughs> I know. can't do it. You I, know, know. I mean, I look. I grew up in New Orleans, and my neighbors uh, were a literal Bayou classic house divided. So like, <laughs> like right. the uh, my neighbors, uh, my best friend, he his. Uh, his father, I think, I always get this confused, but I, if, if they listen to this, I apologize. But I think his father was a Grambling graduate and the mother was a Southern grad. Uh, but it could be backwards. But, um, you know, again. We'll find them and make them uh, listen. Well, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And then they'll come after me. But uh, best friend growing up, uh, in little house divided, uh, the the ultimate Thanksgiving day uh game that that you would get yeah i know you get like you used to get texas texas a&m you sure. get the egg bowl sure but in new orleans it was it was this one and this would take oh, over you classic it would baby. take over the entire city and region and when i was in ulm yep. driving home for thanksgiving i'm driving home with all these grambling fans from monroe That's like right. down i-55 and just like you just see the Grambling flags, the Grambling plates, you'd see all that stuff. And then once I hit I-10 and 55, it would just emerge with the Grambling and Southern fans coming from Baton Rouge because that's where the two interstates divided. I mean, they, they yeah. intersected. I'm sorry. And, and it basically, that's what uh, led to the Bayou Classic, which was great. Yeah, it's one of the it's one of the great classics uh, we we have many in the HBCU world. They mean the world to us. Um, I've tried to make it my mission to expose the world to as many of them as I can. Uh, it's a thing that I love, and I want other people to love it with me. Uh, we actually have one today, uh, recording on August 26th. The MEAC SWAC kickoff is tonight. I'll be doing an HBCU football Ask Me Anything in the Moon Crew Discord. Shout out. You have two of the moderators on it right here, but um, I'll be watching that game. Uh, I believe, Josiah, what game are you watching tonight? I'm going to be I'm be checking out, I mean, you know, obviously, Hawaii versus Vanderbilt. Yes. But oh, I'm, I'm also going to be watching. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm watching UTEP versus Jacksonville State because, I mean, the line on that one's pretty tight, so. But I, I'm just super curious what that what's that going to look like because I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what it, what it is. You know, I don't know as much. You know, Jacksonville State's moving up. UTEP's getting has had some better seasons ish lately. So what is what does it look like when they meet up? I want to see. What were you about to say, there, Commission? Well, I mean, you know, the Sickos Committee Game of the Week. Uh, of course, it's it's our, our love and Las Cruces. Uh, <laughs> And it's it's UMass at at New Mexico State. <laughs> I don't know how much of a, oh a close game it'll be. I think it'll be. They were <laughs> they were very close when New Mexico State w- traveled up to Amherst last year, uh, and then and then New Mexico State was able to pull away in like the fourth quarter. Will the the same thing happen again, or has Don Brown's Maybe. mass men, the UMass men, the Minutemen, uh, improved over the offseason? Also, Josiah, one thing about your Jacksonville State, uh, the head coach is Rich Rodriguez. So I just wanted That's to right. take that. He's Rich Rod back in That's FBS. Back there. We just can't keep him away, folks. He's coached <laughs> two teams. Can't get rid of him. Coached four FBS teams in his life. What a career. <laughs> Jeff, who are you watching tonight? I'll be enjoying uh, your The Ohio University Bobcats <laughs> at uh, San Diego State. Um, I, 
those are two schools that I think both have a pretty good chance at making a run in both their conferences. Um, and San Diego State kind of always is a very solid defense with like no offense. So <laughs> that could also be a limiting factor if they can't get much running um, through that. They have had some really great running backs that have been the exception of that rule. So um, it'll be interesting kind of to see where both of those schools are. And, you know, shout out to, we got well, wife's grandpa and some other family friends uh, that are some San Diego State alums. So shout out to them. Yeah, it's going to be great. We are our first weekend of football. We can't wait. We're going to be changing our schedule to Sundays. So we will be recording maybe a day later than before. Kamish, I want to thank you for coming on with us. Anything you want to leave the people with before we get out of here? No, just uh, again, um, we appreciate all the support in the Sickos community. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Uh, check out our Substack. Blue Blue does a, a good bit of writing for us every now and then, which he may start up again with our, our crazy I will. sicko synopsis when we uh, – pick some random games and and try to speak in old-timey Substack language, uh, which we, we will have running up again this year. And then uh, join the Patreon. You can chat with all the Feed Your Mascot folks uh, on the uh, uh, in the Patreon there in the Discord right. with us. And then, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, buy some of our merch. We got some hoodies. We got some, you know, the sky blue on is on on, on back order for blue, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm still yelling at him. Like, we got to get him a hoodie, you know, because he actually gets cold and it's not 105 where I'm at right now. So uh, <laughs> that's correct. And then again, finally, uh, just just keep checking for our stuff. Uh, we we appreciate everything here and, you know, keep listening to the, the mascot. I'm going to have to bug my mother-in-law for some toilets now, but I may have to wait. Uh, it's more of a Christmas thing. <laughs> Here, yeah, but, you know, it, sure. I'll say it's more of a when you can get your whole family together yes. and, and not have to do a deal alone because it's a pain not, in the rear. So yes, it's it's, when, it's why it's when a you don't thing. have to download the tamale tracker uh, to find the tamale man <laughs> in Chicago Park. But no, thank you so much for having me uh, on, and and I, I definitely do appreciate it. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll plug this for you guys, and uh, let's enjoy some football. It starts in like two hours. Mm-hmm. Let's go. Give me, give me the motto, Kamish. Give me the motto. <laughs> All football is good football, y'all. <laughs> Let's go. Hey, Kamish, uh, I count you among one of my great friends. I'm always grateful for you giving me the platform to talk about historically black colleges and universities. And I will love you. I will love you forever for it. And this is what you sent me. I've kept it. That's right. I'll never get rid of it. I, I love Tulane because they, they, I was telling everybody who would listen this day, this team is good. Yeah. And then they, they told me how much that trophy weighs. So That's right. when I get a chance to get to New Orleans, I'm going to, to a Tulane oh, game. Uh, Jeff, what do you want to lead the people with? So I will be probably at some, well, this will probably not mean much because it'll probably happen after this episode when we get it up. But I will, uh, this Saturday night, I will probably do Instagram live of me eating the tamales. So, uh, I'll probably throw in in the Discord <laughs> when I'm doing that uh, to do some live taste tests. Um, uh, yeah, we've got we've got a lot of football uh, up on deck this week, and then some more next week. And so, yeah, prime let's, time. Let's do it. Let's watch some football, guys. I'm excited. I can't wait. Josiah, head chef of social media. Where can the people find us, and what do you want to leave the people with? We we're on we are on threads and we're on Instagram, we're on Blue Sky, or as Blue likes to call it Blue Ski. That's right. Um, I go back and, and forth with the sickos every week on it. I, I don't that they engage with me, so I keep talking to them. The uh but we're also on X, Twitter, whatever, as long as that thing is still kicking, we're on there for now. 
Um, and yeah, you know, as, as always, you got Hail State, Go Pokes, and uh, Go Bows this week. I uh, I signed up to root for, we were asked at the beginning of the season that the committee, the Sickos committee asked us to pick a team. I picked Hawaii. Uh, because they have changed their name back to the Rainbow Warriors, which was their name in my youth. And I called them that even after they changed it. But I, I love Hawaii. I've been to Hawaii before. It is literally paradise on earth. And I am in support of Coach Timmy Chang. I want I, I want everyone, I've told and I'll be consistent, find one thing that you can love about college football to get you through the season. And that will make your experience just that much better for the football season. I'm going to say it for Jeff because he didn't get the opportunity <laughs> to. Boiler Up and Indiana Word. Uh, you could figure out what that is if you know what's going on in East Lafayette. And I'm also going to say this for the commish because he didn't get a chance to. But go Warhawks. I mean, you know, go ULM. I love them dearly because they are like many things in Louisiana. They go by an acronym and they don't go by their full name unless you make them say it. Uh, so, <laughs> All right. Just I, I, everybody I, pray I, for six and six in a bowl game for the Warhawks. Just just pray. We need a miracle. Let's get it. Let's go. Everybody. We'll to, to all the deities, because uh, we're not sure which We're'd one will do it. So just do all of them. Somebody help, please. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Surprise season where they win their conference. That's what's Monroe, baby. Let's go. Um, <laughs> but it is back. You will have football in your face this week. And I'm excited for it. I hope you're excited for it. I make it a point to say this everywhere I go and everywhere that I'm on. But this week I'm saying it because it means a lot to me. Behold, behold, the green and gold, a thing that you will see everywhere. And I'm excited because they are the Legion is performing in Houston. And may the heavens resound from your magnificent sound. I'm so excited, and I'm, I'm I'm out here rooting for him every step of the way. So enjoy the season. We'll be with you every step. And don't forget to feed your mascot. Run and shoot. <laughs> <laughs>